0: Good
1: morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we're going to start our program with Andrea Nagoyan, who is a real star. She had a breakthrough book um, which about her native Vietnamese food and just followed it up with Vietnamese Food Any Day, which actually places the the, um, these flavors that people crave into the hands of the home cook. Um, we enjoy talking to Andrea. This gorgeous book we got in the mail it, it turns out to be, I would say, as practical as it is lovely. Um, Andrea Nguyen, you've written how many books? Uh, this is my sixth one. Yeah, but this one you really struck a nerve. It's called Vietnamese Food Any Day, Simple Recipes for True Fresh Flavors. And I think you've taken that giant leap from when uh, we all learned to love Vietnamese food, um, but we're hesitant to try it on our own. But... Your book, I think, first of all, you can tell you cook all the time, and you know the ins and outs of of all this of this cooking stuff with with Vietnamese and probably every other cuisine. But also, you really want people to be able to cook it anytime they want in their home, and not for special occasions going out. Is that true?
2: Oh, most definitely. You know, uh, nowadays we live in a global um, situation. And we go out and we, you know, eat all different kinds of foods. And I figure, you know, if people are making pizza and tacos on a weeknight, why shouldn't they also be making Vietnamese food? And our supermarkets um, have certainly changed over the years, too. You know, we, we have... Like forty thousand different um, items in an American supermarket, and that is so much more different than when my family arrived from Vietnam in nineteen seventy-five, when you know uh, seemingly exotic things back then, such as fish sauce.
1: Oh yeah, now yeah, many there are, huh?
2: Right, exactly. There were only like eleven thousand items in in American supermarkets in the seventies, and now compared to forty thousand, and you know we want to to cook. And eat globally, and because we live globally um, in America nowadays, so why not make Vietnamese food anytime you want, any day you want?
1: Right, and uh, you also, though you've you made a point here that um, mostly you don't need any special equipment. You just give the basics that would be the need for this cooking, and the fact that you do not have to go to a specialty food store to to get any of the ingredients.
2: Correct. You can shop at an American supermarket, a regular mainstream market. And, you know, there are people who said to me, oh my gosh, it's inauthentic if I don't go to an Asian supermarket to get these ingredients. Well, you know, I don't have to go to an Italian market to make Italian food.
1: Right. So, but you know, first of all, I think that uh, Vietnam is blessed with a really rich, multi layered, uh, delicious cuisine.
2: Well, I can't agree with you more.
1: (laughs) Why would you? Right. I mean, that's the starting point here. I think that um, uh, Americans fell in love with
2: it early on, don't you? I I do. And, you know, Vietnamese food is this interesting um, animal in in the sense that it merges the cuisines of East Asia with Southeast Asia, with South Asia, and then with Europe, and then now with America. Uh And it does that... Seamlessly. Yeah.
1: I, uh, I'm i jumping ahead a little bit, but I always thought the shaking beef was Chinese.
2: You know, it may have been made by Chinese people. I mean, Vietnam was um, heavily, has been heavily right. influenced by Chinese culture. Um, but, you know, it's a dish that is wholly Vietnamese. I mean, it's served on a bed of, of um, watercress or lettuce greens. And, and the Chinese rarely eat, you know, raw um, vegetables,
1: uh, and then true. there's like
2: a very a, a, a vinegary salad dressing that's very kind of French oriented. But then and and then there's the beef, which um, is this idea of you know you you take a large tough cut and cut it into small cubes and you, you know, season it with, with seemingly Chinese ingredients, soy sauce and oyster sauce and, and whatnot, but then, and you shake it around in a very hot skillet. So again, you know, and there's a, it's this merging of ideas.
3: Right. We, so it
2: seems like one thing, but it's actually another, and that another part is the Vietnamese part.
0: We 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 met that at Charlie Phan's restaurant in, yes. in, San, in San Francisco.
2: Yes, yes, and Charles Sand did not, you know, create that dish. He popularized it, you know, and so, and he is Chinese-Vietnamese. But, you know, it's been made by, you know, Vietnamese people for a long time. So, um, you know, I don't like to argue... um, Whose food is what? Who's, is oh, whose? I know.
1: It's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, yeah.
2: yeah. Because, you know, it really is emerging of ideas and it's most popular within the repertoire of Vietnamese cuisine.
1: Okay, do you start out? You, you put us into um, your sphere of why you wrote this book and what your background is. Um, and then explain how we're supposed to use this book
2: or you're supposed to use this book by, you know, first taking a look at um, the front part of the book that describes how to shop for ingredients because I think one of the things that's missing nowadays is, you know, people really knowing how to grocery shop. And so I did something unusual in this book in the sense that I listed um, brand suggestions. Yeah, I was going to mention that. That, I was surprised because you don't
1: usually get that.
2: No, we're not supposed to. But, you know, it's so difficult to figure out what's what and which to select. Um, And so I provided um, little notes, like tasting notes or usage notes, so that people get a sense that, you know, the give and take that's associated with buying ingredients, so that when they buy something, they're perfectly aware of what they're getting. And I think that um, that's so helpful because I've watched – A lot of people grocery shop, not just in the Asian section, but everywhere in the supermarket. And, you know, they're oftentimes using their phone or they're calling somebody to get help. And so I say to people, you know what, you can even, like, take a photo of that page from the book and take it with you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just going to bring that up next. You and I are in the same thought track. I'm looking here. And, I mean, this is probably the most useful thing. You have a photograph of the bottles with the
2: brands on
1: for all the products.
2: <laughs> yes, and that's then that's there on purpose, Anne. Yeah. And um, the same thing for the two-page spread that shows all the noodles oh, and yes. rice paper. So yeah. I, I,
0: when I opened up the book, I, I mean, started looking through it, I figured you were standing right next to me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you okay. really do care about and whether then, people are going to be able to be yeah, successful
0: with these and recipes. We, and then we came home to the kitchen, the kitchen, and you made sure I didn't do anything really stupid.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You know, because I do stupid things. I sometimes don't follow my own recipes, and then my husband will say, well, why didn't you? <laughs> does he cook? Uh, he, yes, he does. Um, and, but he knows that I enjoy cooking so much that he is a very, very good sous chef. Okay.
0: <laughs> so he so he gets to chop things.
2: <laughs> he gets to chop things. And boil and, things. Yes. And make salads and, and um and then I am very grateful that he also helps to clean up. The some of the
1: um the condiments I think people are gonna be sort of surprised about because um you you have here um the magi-, uh, magi, I always thought that was an American, I thought it was an Italian-American brand. <laughs> well, it looks like it,
2: but from the name, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, but it's an old, you know, Swiss-German condiment was, from yeah, the thought, 1880s. Yeah, yeah, I thought
0: it was Swiss, I thought, what are we talking about Swiss for when it's Talking about Vietnamese.
2: Well, they, but
1: if they've been around forever. I mean, in yeah. the states, they've been around forever too.
0: Yeah, we used, yeah. We used to have those little cubes. Yeah, we used to have soup cubes. Yeah, yeah. my mother used to cook those. That was a, that was dinner.
1: <laughs> yeah, Boyan like cubes.
0: His mother was not a great cook. He may have surprised that. Fortunately, you cannot hear me complaining. Now. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: But, you know, I reading this, I suddenly realized how exotic Sriracha sounded,
2: like, not that long ago. Yes, exactly. And, you know, nowadays, um, Sriracha seems like it is just everywhere. But to tell you the truth, um, when I was researching for this book, and I would travel to different parts of the U.S. for work, I would always go to a supermarket or two. And in the south in Montgomery, Alabama, I went to a piggly wiggly and I thought, you know, let's see what they have. And so I thought they must have sriracha. And they didn't. And someone came up to me and said, What are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for sriracha and he said to me, Shri What? <laughs> and he said, These are all the hot sauces we have and they were southern hot sauces. Um, no sriracha. Really? Yeah. And but I just needed to go a few miles away to um, a different grocery chain called Publix, which is a southern-based grocery chain, and they had it. So I think that we assume so much um, in our, you know, um, food circles, but, you know, people, like, they make do, too. And and this book is also about making do because you need to understand, like, what – how these ingredients are, what ingredients you need and how they function because so much of of cooking, especially for, you know, immigrants and refugees like my family was like assessing what was available, mining, you know, our resources that were in America and then creating um, to our best ability the flavors of um, our native cuisines.
1: Yeah, your mother, you said, was really good at this.
2: She was and she still is and, you know, at 85, um, she cooks a lot of food still. For um, nowadays, she just for herself and my dad, but also whenever we I come home and my siblings, and she was she's always thinking creatively of what to um, use from an American supermarket, and we talk about different ingredient substitutions. We also discuss about different ingredients. Um, from Vietnam that are coming to the U.S. too, because that's very exciting.
3: Uh-huh. So
2: for her, it keeps her, you know, that evolution of cuisine certainly keeps her creativity going, and I think it also keeps her young.
1: Uh huh. Right. I mean, it's a brave move at, at the time when you left Vietnam. Of course, I mean, you probably <laughs> you were lucky to get out, right? Yes. Yeah, um, but still, it was a brave move to come here
2: most definitely um my parents are both in their 80s i mean in their 40s now they're in their 80s and you know when i turned 40 um i thought to myself my god what would it be like to pick up your um self and your five children and put your um identity in um a handbag and a small suitcase and travel across the pacific to a new country and start over
1: yeah i think it's amazing isn't it
2: yeah
0: But it was better than staying behind.
2: Yes, exactly. There was no really, you know, the option of staying behind was not one that my father in particular could endure because he had been in the military in the 50s and 60s. And um, he knew that his fate would have been one in a re-education camp.
0: Uh Now, were you you south or north Vietnam?
2: Oh, we were definitely, like, we were in Saigon.
0: Saigon. So you were south? Yes. No, we got we got the story from Charlie about about how how his family got out of yeah of South South Vietnam in not not not, not too much time to spare. Right.
2: Right. Right. My well, my family was very lucky to have been able to leave um on a plane a week before the fall of Saigon in April oh, of 1975.
1: Shoot. Oh my. Oh. But oh, we,
2: we were lucky to be on a plane and oh, not yeah. um being left left behind and oh, sure. and on a boat um and subject to, you know, pirates and and even to stay at a refugee camp for years like some of my friends did.
1: Yeah. And well, Lydia Bastiana, she got trapped in a refugee camp.
0: Yes. Yes. And, you know, you but, but not, in, not in Vietnam. No.
1: Not in Vietnam. No.
0: <laughs> well, 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 was it, was, wasn't that much nicer a place? <laughs>
2: I think so. Yeah.
1: But um, well, the really scary story. you Remember the the restaurant tour that um, came to Pittsburgh, um, helped by Catholic Charities, uh, the Cambodian who opened a restaurant.
0: Yeah, and he met his mother. And, and he, he met his mother in Pittsburgh.
1: Yes, I well, mean I couldn't believe the, the, how, I, I, it was just beyond my conception of what it must have been like under Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia.
2: Well, they, you know, uh, folks from Cambodia, they also needed to get out. The same thing, you know, whether they were Cambodian, Hmong, or Lao.
0: Uh-huh. But, but can yeah. you can you can you imagine that you may, you met your mother. 10,000 miles away from where you started. Yeah. Uh, But, you
2: know, those are the stories um, that people tell. And when my family was first here in the initial, you know, 10, 15 years, we would get phone calls on the weekends when, you know, as you remember, the rates were cheap and you can make long-distance phone calls, you know, in the evening on a weeknight or any time during the weekend. And we would get random phone calls from people who identify themselves to my parents and they would say, I'm here in America, and I got your phone number from so and so, and they were suddenly reconnected. And my mother was fortunate enough to um, have reunited with her best childhood, her best friend from her childhood, growing up in North Vietnam, and was able to visit with her before um, she passed away.
1: That's just amazing. Beautiful story. Um, What is that term you use for? Going back kind of what we were talking about a little bit ago, It's what is the uh, Vietnamese word for smart cooking?
2: Oh, um, it's a term um, called kale, yeah. and, it's, and it's spelled K-H-E-O. I and, love that. I love it, that yeah, concept. Yeah, thank you. Because you know, people question notions of authenticity and oh, um, right. what is true, and genuine, and for me, it boils down to intention and knowledge and foundation. And um, in Vietnamese, we we always use the word kale to describe, you know, a, a, an action or intention, and when it's that is um, well founded and well executed, with a certain level of finesse and balance. And when it's um, applied to food and to cooking, you know, it is this great um, sort of a shout-out to say that you did that well, you know, with mm-hmm. all the right notes. And it was done, you know, just with the the right spirit. And there was also creativity. And it's this wonderful balance, almost, you know, on like a balance beam or something of cooking. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, And that's what I try to... To help people do, as, you know, in the kitchen, because I think that you just can't go into a kitchen and just start throwing ingredients together. And if you were simply following a recipe, yes, but I want to give people knowledge that will, you know, be with them and stay with them for the rest of forever and make them better cooks.
1: Well, you walk uh, the reader through. Um, noodles and rice, which I think is a very tricky thing to do, to get those all straight, uh, through the seasonings, the spices, the, uh, um, yeah, the, the, well, produce, of course. Every time I see produce, I think of lemongrass. We had, um, actually, a Philippine chef gave me a a lemongrass plant. And, of course, in Pittsburgh, you have to bring it in every year. Yes. And uh, and then would put it out, and it would double yeah. in size every year.
2: She, one,
0: one year she got lazy.
2: I just couldn't stand to bring it in again. It was so huge. It was so right so it, it died. It died. So you, you sacrificed it to the Pittsburgh winter.
0: Exactly. And Peter called me. What did you call me? I called it Lemon Lemongrassicide. <laughs> lemon <grassicide. laughs> She did it on purpose, Andrea. Can you believe it? It was a perfectly healthy plant. (laughs) It lasted about two weeks. (laughs) Oh,
2: no. Well, of course, you know, the the winters in Pittsburgh are harsh, but the summers are so, and, you know, the fall is so wonderfully warm. It's perfect for...
1: Crazy. It was, like, I was
0: happy. This this year, we've only had one season so far. It's the rainy season. Oh. we've We've been under monsoon conditions.
1: Well, you know, the other thing, you, you make this, um, um, you take the, the, the unnecessary complications out of things. So, so I mean, you, you're not giving us a recipe for grinding and mixing our own curry spice.
2: Correct. I mean, you know, you and you don't have to do it by hand. You know, I think that so many people, um, they when they... Conceive of making Asian food, and it seems so unfamiliar and seemingly exotic that they think, "Oh my goodness, you know, if I don't do you know pound something by hand with a mortar and pestle, that it just won't turn out right." Yeah, like pesto.
1: I mean, right. I, I've never in my life used. You know, I have one of those Mexican things. I never once used it. Right. I use and the food processor. We wouldn't right, have any right. pesto. And
2: and once in a while, you can use you know go, cook unplugged. I say, and it's fine, but. But, if you want to really incorporate this food into your everyday eating, by all means, use um, a machine and get some help right. and And I base that on this um, shopping experience I had in Vietnam years back, where I was visiting the same outdoor market every day um, okay. for over the course of like three or four days and I and I would observe this um, vendor who had these beautiful piles of finely chopped chilies and lemongrass and shallot and garlic. And finally, one day, I went up to her and I said, Sister, do you, do you chop all of that by hand every day for your customers? <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, No, sister, I use a machine. <laughs> you say that? And, and because, you know, and, and in places like Vietnam and elsewhere where, where people are selling you these sorts of, of pre-prepped ingredients, <laughs> you can buy the smallest quantities and come home and throw together a meal and i think that we don't um that as a cookbook writer i need to kind of liberate people <laughs> and myself uh-huh. to to take they're not even shortcuts but they're just how people cook and it's okay
1: uh-huh. yeah i agree absolutely
2: so now the
1: one of the most important aspects of this book is that you start with basic recipes and know-how, and then you, you explain and walk people through how you build on that uh, to get to where you're ultimately going to go. Um, I, I'm, I'm envious of perfect rice, just to start with, but I think if you get the right rice cooker, you'd be all right, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I learned how to cook rice from my mother. That was the first thing she taught me how to do. Um, because she noticed that I was chubby, and I yeah, <laughs> like, chubby. Yeah. I was chubby, and and she needed you know another helper in the kitchen, and she started me out on cooking rice, and she was very disciplined in washing rice and measuring the water carefully,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, we you know would she schooled me on using a rice cooker, and then when I moved out of the house and started cooking rice on my own, I used a rice cooker, but then. She also taught me how to make rice in a regular pot, Uh and it was very different. But as soon as I started making rice in a pot, I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is so easy! You cannot."
1: That's what I do. I mean, I, I, you know, people send us things all the time because of the show, and I got this complicated rice cooker. Um, that you could cook three different dishes in it You know <laughs> it was, uh, you, could, you could even do stir fry Rice as well wow. as uh, steam and bro- Boiled rice And I gave it to, to our son And he, he hasn't
0: used it either He but. hasn't used it
1: either
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yes You know and, and, it's, and cooking rice used to be Very difficult if you had to do it Say over a straw fire uh, Or yeah. coals And people did just fine and so you know, I I still enjoy you know cooking rice um, in a pot, and o- only once in a while would I do it in an electric cooker. But I taught my husband, who's not Vietnamese, how to cook rice, and he loves making it in a pot. And he actually like doesn't like it when I you know even like make it in a in a an electric cooker um, because he mm-hmm. says that you can't smell the rice as much. Oh, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> um, I I wanted to point out that. Um, These recipes themselves are going to make you hungry because they're very, very delicious. Um, and also, the on tricky issues such as the um, wraps and, and your know, wontons and so forth, you have diagrams, which I think are really nice.
2: Thank you. Yes. Um, that was something that I really wanted to include. You know, beauty shots are wonderful for. Um Inspiring people. But there are certain tricky things that I've learned over the years, such as, you know, dealing with rice paper and folding um, dumplings and making um, the caramel sauce, which is a an item for savory cooking in the Vietnamese um, kitchen, that people just needed to see, like, a few little pointers <laughs> um, for the benefit of not being able to watch someone um, cook it in front of them over and over like I have. So I thought, you know what, can we just do, you know, these process shots, which is what we call them. Um, and my uh, photographer and designer said, of course we can. So those are my hands that you see.
1: Oh, is that true? Okay, And I want to mention finally these notes that you have. They're so useful. And again, it comes. You can reading these. You know, it comes from somebody who really knows what she's talking about and really cooks.
0: Well, that's what I was talking about when I said. I can feel Andrea standing right next to me. Exactly. Tell me what to do, making sure I don't do something really stupid.
1: She knows the stupid (laughs) thing you're going to do, and she makes sure you don't.
0: (laughs) Something like that.
2: Because I have done many stupid things, and and you'd rather have me do the stupid things than you. (laughs) Uh, Well, Andrea, this
1: is a real uh, an important book for people who love... Vietnamese food and uh, and t- intimidated about cooking it and you put it into the realm of the possible and not just possible but, but desirable to be able to do this so again it's Andrea Nguyen and it's Vietnamese food any day and you really need listeners to have this on your bookshelf well thank you Andrea
2: oh thank you it's always a pleasure to talk to you
1: yes and you too <laughs>
2: Have a great weekend.
1: You You too. too.
2: Bye-bye.
0: We're going to continue with an Asian theme right after the break, but don't go away because we will be right back.
3: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
1: Welcome back. Now, if I say Eric Silverstein... You probably aren't expecting a, an Asian-themed
0: cookbook, So there, so there huh?
1: Especially one teamed up with Southern cooking flavors. But that's what you're getting in the, the Peached Tortilla, which is modern Asian comfort food from Tokyo to Texas. Uh, Eric has an interesting backstory uh, born in Tokyo to uh, Chinese and Jewish American parents has <laughs> a lot of other complications. He has a great story to tell and a great recipe. So let's listen to Eric Silverstein.
0: Okay. Eric Silverstein, does
1: that what you said yeah. it was? <laughs> Silverstein. Not only in Austin, Texas, could you have a successful restaurant, restaurant's plural. Came and company, floral,
0: um, called the Peached Tortilla. <laughs> That's right. I mean, really. Well, were you just trying to make sure that nobody else had that name? Yeah, nobody else had that name, I'm sure. <laughs> uh,
4: well, I grew up in Atlanta, you know, so uh, it's the Peach State. Peach, um, yeah. But I, I do like to do things differently than the average person, so yes. Yes, yeah. a part of that.
0: We, we knew that when we got to page 10. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, to be honest, um, you didn't grow up in Atlanta. You grew up. In, tell, tell us your background. Talk talk about complicated. Your background was incredibly complicated.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I was born in Tokyo. Uh, my dad had a job overseas, and so you know, born in 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 Tokyo, Japan, to you know, American parents. But my mother, my mother's originally born in Hong Kong. So, Chinese
1: American mother and non practicing Jewish American father.
4: Exactly. Well, my dad did grow up practicing, but you know, not not when I was. By the time I was born, and uh, you know, I think the biggest thing for me uh, when I was a kid was just the impact of Japanese culture on myself. I mean, I would. It was very difficult for me to identify as being completely American because I just didn't spend much time in the United States, so I didn't really identify as an American until I moved to the to the U.S. But I I also didn't know what to identify with, so I, to be quite frank, I didn't identify with anything, and um, that was a little confusing, you know. I was excited to move to the states when I was eleven because I felt like you know it was time to. You know, I'm a U.S. citizen. My parents are, you know, went to college in the states. My dad grew up in America. Like, you know, it's time I we move back. Um,
1: but you know, that's a tough adjustment. You were a middle school age kid, and that's a big tough. adjustment. Peer pressure galore. But uh, you skipped over one thing, and I thought it was really interesting that your dad uh, in in Tokyo worked for American fast food chains. That's correct. Uh, tell us about that.
4: Well, um, you know, he was working for PepsiCo, and he was specifically working for Kentucky Fried Chicken, and you know that that was the start of a very lengthy career for him in, in the restaurant business, both as a as a working for big companies, as an owner operator or owner, as a consultant. So, uh, you know, he's had a, a a twenty plus year career in the restaurant business, but um, you know. Fast food. I write about this in the book, but fast food in, the, in Japan is very different. Yes. Than fast food in the United States, um, the quality of the employees, the quality of the food, uh, cleanliness of the stores—it's all very different. Uh-huh. And you know, fast food kind of gets this bad, bad name. But in 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 Japan, it was great. You know, we used to eat fast food quite a bit. My dad always took me to <laughs> you know McDonald's and KFC as a kid. Um. We have a friend
1: who's worked with this uh, one Japanese village for his whole career, which spans decades and decades. And uh, he said that the the most wonderful thing was the introduction of McDonald's into the village. (laughs) Yeah. It got families eating together again, that go out and eat together. Sure. So I find that hard to believe, but... Anyhow, um, so you, you integrated into this multicultural situation, and then your dad takes a job in Atlanta, and that's yeah. Go ahead. Right, and and so right. you said you were looking forward to it, but it wasn't easy, right?
4: It wasn't. Um, like I said, I didn't know a lot about American culture. I was still trying to identify myself. You know, as an American, as an American culturally, even though I was a U.S. citizen, and you know, I'd probably spent maybe six or seven months totally in the United States in the first twelve years of my life. So there was a big adjustment, and also I'm going into junior high. I'm going into uh, a private school, um, which is predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a biracial kid. Um, there were no other biracial kids.
1: Your sister I mean,
4: was with you? I'm sorry?
1: Your sister, did she come with
4: you? Probably she did, so. but she was in a different school uh, when I started. Um, when we moved over here, we were in different schools, and then she joined when she got into junior high and middle school. But, you know, uh, I was just, it was a big change, you know. So, like I said, there were no, um, I think there were two Asian kids in the whole school. Um, you know, I was used to being around Asians all the time. Right. Uh there was a lack of cultural awareness, a significant lack of cultural awareness. Um, people didn't understand the culture I came from, uh, the food I ate.
1: I mean, um, you, you took bento box lunches. That would be enough to to, to yeah. carry on any middle school kid. <laughs>
4: yeah, it would. It would. And, and, and to be completely frank, I got I caught a lot of flack for it. You know, I sure. was picked on a lot. Um, it, it was a difficult time for me um, for being different. Um, I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know how to talk, uh, you know, with the slang. I didn't. I was just different, you know. I was. I was brought up in a different environment. My parents didn't really prep me for that. But you said uh, they, that they,
1: a lot of this prepared you for entrepreneurship, which is how yeah. you, before you got to that entrepreneurship thing, um, it, you also got a law degree from uh, George Washington, uh, uh, Washington. University in St. Louis, right?
4: That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I got a law degree. I thought I was going to become a sports agent at one point. I ended up practicing law and decided, you know, it wasn't for me. But I do think, you know, that experience, you know, transitioning into, you know, middle school to the U.S. and then going to law school and taking bar exams and stuff, I think all that helped shape me for sure. And um particularly the experience when I was a kid, it, it made me... Um, I think I put a chip on my shoulder, which I've used as an entrepreneur. Um, and I think every entrepreneur and every small business owner needs some form of motivation, something to motivate them. Um, a lot of them have a you know kind of a me against the world attitude.
0: Uh-huh. I interesting, but, but, but Eric, a food truck.
4: <laughs> well, what's that? What about the
1: food I truck?
0: Said, I said a food truck. Why Why did you,
1: when you were going to get out of, of uh,
0: litigation,
1: why did you decide to, to start a, a food
4: truck? Well, I mean, you know, we tried to start a restaurant, and I couldn't raise the money for it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, um, you know, at that point when we couldn't raise the money, it was either, hey, you're either going to do this and do it in a much smaller capacity in a food truck, or you're not going to do it at all. And and I and I really wanted to do it. I really wanted to do something. So that's why I started a food truck. It was my only option. Um, but it was grueling.
1: So a food truck is grueling.
4: It's absolutely grueling. You know, I didn't I didn't realize how grueling it was going to be. I went in and it was very naive about the industry and very naive about the challenges that I was going to face. You know, um, so it was a humbling experience early on. I thought I was going to come in. I thought I was going to crush it. I thought we would have. <laughs> You know, we'd be making big money, you know, I'd be able to recoup my salary that I lost. Mm. None of that happened. You know, none of that happened. And, you know, I went from making six figures with 401k benefits at the firm at insurance, a great insurance plan, health care savings, all that stuff, to no paycheck for two years, out-of-pocket insurance. She hit the mute button, but... Um, Anyhow, was... your
1: your mother you mentioned was not exactly delighted by this decision, right?
4: What was that, my, mo- my your mother? Your mother was not so
1: thrilled over your decision yeah. to leave the law,
4: uh, protection
1: yeah. and, and start a food truck. I could understand where she had come down on that.
4: Yeah, and also she's you know she's she came to the United States as an immigrant, and you know. The mentality is, hey, we work hard so that our kids have a better life. And I had the better life, and then, you know, I was like, hey, I'm going to go back into food service, which, you know, that's what a lot of immigrants go into because they can't go into anything else. So she felt like it was potentially taking a step backwards, backwards, you know, but she also knew that I was a little bit different and that I was always going to want to do my own thing. Um. So, you know, uh, I mean, now she's, you know, one of my biggest fans. So, it is what it is.
1: Now, so, what was the the moment where you decided to move into a brick and mortar and build a, a number of restaurants in Austin?
4: Well, I never even thought about building a number of restaurants. The first challenge was just get one brick and mortar open, and that was I'd say about 2013 is when I pulled the trigger on that. About a year before we opened, and I was really at a, a point where I was like, "Hey, you got to kind of go all in on this thing. You can't kind of let it pitter patter on the sidelines." Um, you know, that never felt right for me to not to not go for it. Um, yeah, you know, I was either going to go for it or I was going to close, but I wasn't going to just operate it at this you know food truck level forever. I knew I needed to make a change. So,
1: so yeah, go ahead.
4: That, you know, I made the decision. I signed the lease. Yeah,
1: and I mean, did you already know the kind of food you were going to produce?
4: I didn't. I didn't. Um, you know, I made the conscious decision to to serve a lot more than just street food, and that really pushed pushed me. Um you know, that really pushed me to uh expand the menu and and kind of serve this modern Asian comfort food that we do now.
1: Yeah, you you subtitle your book, Modern Asian Comfort Food from Tokyo to Texas. That's right. That's you, right. You have a little Korean in there, a little Chinese in there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the street food, some Mexican.
0: <laughs> well, you yeah,
4: I mean, there's not that much Mexican. You know, the Mexican is just that we're putting in a tortilla. But yeah, I mean, look, I I grew up in Japan. My mother's Chinese. We would take a lot of trips to Singapore and all throughout Asia. So you know, that's why I felt compelled to tell my story because otherwise, my food doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But. It's a product of what I've tasted and what I've experienced growing up. I mean, it really is. It's not a joke, and that is who I am. But you know, that was a unique upbringing. You know, most people don't. It is. Don't spend twelve years in a in a foreign country that they don't have ties to. Um, and then on top of that, grow up in a biracial household. So that that that's who I am. <laughs>
1: Tell me this. Uh, can you pick out a couple of recipes that would kind of give our listeners a, an idea of the, the, your style of food? Um, just walk us through a couple. Yeah, of
4: yeah. I mean, uh, well, I'll give you two. The the numbers. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the southern fun is a comfort food dish that I grew up eating at home. It's chop on, and we modernized it. We we changed a couple items out. The sauce in it is a little bit different. But it still stays pretty true to the dish I grew up eating, which again is, is a chow fun dish, yeah. uh, which is a wide rice noodle stir fry dish. Yeah. And you know that's a dish that whenever I eat, I always think about home. Another dish in the book is called the Japajam Burger, and it is it is inspired by a concept in Japan called Moss Burger, yeah. which stands for Mountains, Ocean Sea. The fast food chain that you like teriyaki burgers and and a miso ragu on a burger and so I was inspired by those burgers and created the jap Jam Burger which had tomato jam and and uh it's it actually had a hoisin-based sauce on it and I think those two are very representative of taking some ideas and inspiration of things I grew up eating growing up and, and kind of make them our own. And
1: you, you do something very useful which uh, I'm going to spend more time looking at is uh, you, you have a um, a glossary of of foods, but also particularly interesting is the glossary of noodles because I've always gotten confused over those.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the glossary. I think I think when most people go into an Asian store, they're intimidated, and there's just everything's in another language. The smell, the the, the layout is different. So. I think to make this book more approachable, you have to include that to allow, to allow people to know how they're going to get this stuff, where, what to look for, look at the photos, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, you actually you do something I've not seen done before. You actually take a photograph of the product in, in its commercial packaging like people would encounter it in one of these stores.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we did a whole photo shoot in an Asian grocery store.
1: So that's good. Now you also have something very important to um the Asian uh, cuisine is you have a, a whole section of recipes and directions for pickles and sauces. That's correct. I'm, yeah I'm I'm looking at this Asian pear kimchi we have a very productive Asian pear tree. I thought that sounded good. <laughs>
4: It is and that's an easy recipe actually. That's not too difficult. And I think there's there's photos in the book of how to make it. So uh-huh. that's a that's actually a very approachable recipe.
0: So so we have something to do with it other than give it to the bartender Spoke.
4: For- uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you should make kimchi out of it, absolutely. Or uh it's also there's a recipe for the the Asian pear salad, which has Asian pear kimchi but also has Asian pear in the dressing. So it's blended in Spotted with like uh yeah, I mean, I, tofu.
1: mainly I just cut them up and froze them like I would a berry or something.
3: Mm,
1: okay, I okay. did not do anything to them.
0: But so. there's a there's a local sort of semi barbecue f- focused restaurant where the chef owner is a friend of ours, and uh, so we we gave we gave him and his bartender a bushel basket full of Asian pears. Oh yeah, <laughs> and the the, the you, bar, you the bar- can't eat enough of them yourself. I mean, no, no, no. it was trees it produces it was, it was very like productive tons. it was very productive yes
1: yeah uh, but, and anyhow, wow. they smoked the pears they have two giant Texas smokers and yeah. they smoked the pears and then made that into wow. a cocktail
4: okay and they made right it
1: after our podcast <laughs> so wow uh, yeah now uh, give me an overview how many restaurants and other businesses do you have now
4: how many other businesses do I have? Now, how many um, restaurants? and
1: you still have your
4: uh, own? Well, I, I have a restaurant in the airport. Um, so that's a fast casual unit that we license. Mm-hmm. And then I have another restaurant called Bar Peach, which opened in January, and that's a newer restaurant. That's a bar-focused restaurant. Um, that's all in people.
1: Austin.
4: Yeah, it's all in Austin.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep.
4: And then I have a I have an event space called Peach Social House, which is connected to a commercial kitchen, offices, and also a warehouse, and that's like seven thousand square feet all it. And,
0: and then so have, we have
4: we have a lot going on.
0: And then you have the original restaurant, which is called which is the one that's called the Peach, peach tortilla. tortilla,
4: which is called what? The Peach t- Tortilla. Yes. What? What about that?
0: That, that was your first restaurant, right?
4: Yes, sir. Yeah, that that was the first one. Correct. That opened in uh, December of 2014.
0: We're, we're going. We're going to get to Austin one of these days. Of the last time we were supposed to go was two years ago.
1: It got rained out oh, and had to cancel us. The
0: festival got. rained Oh yeah. Down. Well, it's
4: been raining all week this week, so I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. May has been raining every day.
1: Yeah, it's been raining everywhere every day. So, Eric, yeah. I would I would say that you actually would consider your you your, your career a success.
4: Would I? Is that, are you asking me? Would yes,
1: I? I, I was saying you probably would, right? Yeah, I would. Good.
4: I would. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you've done very well.
4: <laughs> and, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and I, I wish you much success with your book too, because there are lots of useful tips in it. Uh, Thank uh, you. Even f- from the point of view of of how to well uh, how how to run. In, in this business, which is a tough yeah. business.
4: It is. The book was, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a labor of love, and, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and effort to make sure that we shot it right, and we, we wrote it right, and, uh, you know, it's, it's meant to kind of get Peace for Tia to a more national level. Not, not because I want to expand nationally, but because, you know, when people come to Austin, I'd like for them to know about Pizza Tortilla. People like yourselves that are in Pittsburgh. You know, maybe one day you come to Austin, you come to Pizza Tortilla. But you kind know, of just trying to tell our story and tell 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 the path that we've gone from, from food truck. I think a lot of a lot of people struggle in this business, and you know, hopefully, it can provide some level of inspiration for those, especially the ones that are starting off. You know, kind of in a smaller scale.
0: It's it's quite a story, Eric. It's quite a story.
4: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. That, that means a lot. I appreciate
0: that. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners. And uh, we'll we'll get we'll get to Austin yet, <laughs> and, and we'll come by. Please do. I, I would
4: love to meet you guys in person, and uh, I appreciate you guys having me on your show.
0: You're welcome,
2: Eric. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Right. Bye. Okay. Thank you, guys. Bye. Take care.
3: Podcasting services for on-the-menu radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
1: What do you do if you have a singular talent for feeding people? Uh, but you also have an extremely busy life. Well, Rosie Dakin figured that out. She she wrote a book. Or she writes here a book called Let Me Feed You. And she focuses on the simple, the direct, the easy, no fuss, no complications. And she feeds people.
0: And here she is.
2: Always pleased to see... a, a cookbook
1: that's not only useful and uh, interesting, but also beautiful. And this one is. It's by Rosie Dakin, and it's called Let Me Feed You, subtitled Everyday Recipes Offering the Comfort of Home. And I guess it's not surprising, uh, Rosie, um, that, that the food styling, the uh, images are just gorgeous, and um, the photography and you have a lot of flowers and, and and things that that think you make you think of beauty, because you are a, you were a very successful interior designer before you became a, a baker and a cookbook author, right?
3: I was absolutely. I did that for about fourteen years uh-huh. before I made the big leap and opened a bakery, which sounds probably a little crazy to some, but. So far, so good.
1: Well, you have really nice images. I mean, they, arranging flowers. Um, they, yeah, lots of flowers, and you have interesting accessories in your home. I must say.
3: Yeah. Well, again, just you know, I, I try to I try to fill the house up with things that have real significant sort of meaning to me, whether I find them on my you know travels or they're gifts from others, but. But everything has its own little story, which I think makes for a, an interesting home.
1: Yeah, you say uh, you should not just do it, decorate your house like all in one full swoop, but you should build it over the years and over your experiences.
3: I absolutely, I truly believe that. I mean, it, and that's the only way really for it to become a true reflection of who you are uh, and, you know, and your family and how you live and uh, as opposed to just filling it up with sort of accessories <laughs> that right. might not really speak to you.
0: Well, now, you you know you're dealing with an interesting character when you you find out that her daughter is called India <laughs> and, her, yeah. and her husband's middle name is Custard. <laughs>
3: well, we only tease him about that one. He, His he, middle he, name is really Murray, but he sure does love Custard.
0: Now, what about about India?
3: Well, India, that name for me uh, stemmed, I I did get a lot of questions after she was born because everyone assumed that it had come, I'd taken it from Gone with the Wind.
0: Right, right. And uh,
3: that wasn't actually my inspiration for it. My inspiration for it was Ashley Hicks, who was, you know, again, relative of Lord Manbatten, and it oh,
0: okay. stems
3: go. from the royal family. But that's where I had heard the name the first time, okay. and I always loved it. I thought it felt very, very strong and independent, and yet still feminine.
1: Well, there's a cheese company, um, a farm and, and cheese maker in uh, our area where we live, uh, and the farm is called Goat Rodeo, <laughs> ah. and, and her first name, the cheese maker, is India.
3: Ah, uh, yeah, you don't hear it very often. Yeah, but, but it's a Beautiful I just, I, sounding. It's truly it. a a lovely classic name, and it suits her perfectly.
0: You don't you don't you don't hear goat rodeo that, that much.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and That's when,
3: true. I haven't heard that one either.
0: And when you do, it's not a compliment.
3: No, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: not at all. It's like it's kind of like a Chinese fire drill.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, you're, you're stirring up trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> I, am. I, am, I am. I am. Anyhow, back to the cookbook. Um, the, the premise of this is that you think that people are born with certain talents, and yours just happens to be feeding
3: people. That's true. Uh, absolutely true. I, you know, everybody's got some innate. Skill set. They're singers. They're they can paint. They you know they can tap dance. I don't know. But for me, it was definitely. Um, I was a natural born feeder. I loved feeding people. I loved cooking for people. I loved. Um, I loved making them. At the end, really, it seemed I loved making them happy. So um, you know, I carried on. I, I ultimately, you know, I did that for much of my adult life. Just with family and friends, and then, and then I decided I would, I would take it public and <laughs> open a open a bakery, and keep on feeding people. So yeah, um, and I you know and that, the book really reflects that too. It's really about uh, bringing everybody around your table and and cooking up great meals for them.
1: And uh, your your recipes, you say, are easy to follow. They're uh, direct, approachable. Simple yes. and not time-consuming.
3: No, and no, because true. you know that's that's the way I cook. I mean, I'm a, obviously I'm a busy working mom, and um, I mean, mind you, my daughters my daughters a, pretty much a grown up now, but nevertheless, you know, trying to run my my business and the rest of my life, I, I just don't have time um, for anything more complicated than that, and um, and yet I want you know I want great results. I just need to be a little more streamlined and efficient about the whole process. So I try to, I you know, I want my recipes to reflect that for sure because I want people to cook more. And if it seems daunting or there's, you know, too many ingredients or whatever, if there's any hiccup, people might not be as receptive to try it. So I write it in a manner that is easy and approachable, and I try to just tell you what to do as opposed to tell you all the things that could go wrong, which also right. is something that can be a little daunting
1: um, you You throw in some um funny asides, some jokingly and, and and others like I'm looking at this thing with the blue striped shirts. Yes, <laughs> uh, thirteen useless facts you might not know about me. Mm-hmm. And what gave you that idea,
3: and how did your uh,
1: editor allow it?
3: <laughs> well, you know, to me, I just thought, what a great exercise in helping people understand who I am as a person, and you know, and again, it speaks to, it speaks to the book as a whole. It's nice to, it, it's nice to sort of feel that you, you personally got to know a bit more about me, and, um, and my life, and the way we live, and the way we eat, and, you know, yeah, some quirky things about me, weird facts that aren't that relevant, but maybe they'll make you smile, I mean. Yeah, there, I mean, some of them,
1: might, I mean, like, um, you don't know quite what to expect, um, that you say, I can't sing worth a damn." I can't no. either, by the way, I always wanted to be a singer, <laughs> and that yeah. never worked out, um, and, and and, you know, that was one of the facts, and then um, you love ribbons. That's too. There are all kinds of funny things that you tell people. The person, yeah, very, you little. know,
3: silly things, but revealing things. That just really, again, they speak to who I am as a person. But I can guarantee you, I cannot sing worth a damn. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I can make gonna, a heck of a dinner for you. I could,
1: Peter's going to tell, no, 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 <laughs> tell a story. No, no, I'm not going to.
0: I'm not going to tell a story. That's not. It's not. It's not necessary. All we, all, we have to, all we have to say is that you, you, you and Rosie share something in common. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> so, um,
1: and you, you like having these kind of whimsical touches of humor, and some of them are kind of hard to catch. I said you—you you almost caught us on, on, on your chicken, your roast chicken recipe.
3: Where you well, had a little note about choking, a choking... Uh, well, I, <laughs> I think the reference in the joke was that I felt like knowing how to make a really great roast chicken was was one of those life skills that we should all have in our arsenal, and and just like being able to change a tire or perform the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah, and that's the so,
1: the Heimlich. It took a yeah, while and for us so, to put that You know,
3: together. I I can teach you how to make a chicken. But, you know, for the Heimlich Maneuver, you'll have to go to YouTube and figure it out there.
0: Okay, well, at least at least, at least we know YouTube is where you go find out about it.
3: Yes, I'm assuming. Yeah.
0: You, you're, not, you're not even sure.
3: Now, um,
1: I like the shots of your own house, the interior of your house.
3: Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of a bonus, isn't it? Well, that's, again, it, it's, it's just like the 13 Useless Facts. I, I think that, you know, being able to show you uh, some of the imagery and some of the, you know, bits and bobs inside my home can help to just explain who I am. And I, I don't know, I just feel like, for me, there's a lot of cookbooks out there, and if there's a way for the reader to feel more connected to me and, in, in, and have a better sense of, of who I am, I I I think that I don't know it's just like being you know being friends with someone I you might be more apt to to cook with them.
1: Now, I I like this um Confessions of a Dish Addict because I happen to know a dish addict. Do you? Oh yeah and she she does not set the table with the same dishes uh, except for you know like after going changing it for a long time and then go back to what? I mean, she has to set the table with different dishes every night.
3: Oh, well, I do love dishes. That is for sure. Um, and I, you know, I think it does, it does make a difference to, um, to, the you know, dependent on the meal you're serving. I think it's another way that we can, in a really simple way, that we can elevate our meal or our experience. Whether it's you know really really pretty little teacup we have to drink our morning tea out of, or you know the plate that we're serving our meatloaf on, I think there's I think there's yeah. ways to make them look even more attractive <laughs> if that's possible with meatloaf. But uh, yeah, I, I really like dishes. And and
1: you, you like your pets? Is there all throughout this book?
3: Yes, they play uh, little pickle. Our dog And Brian, the cat, play a a big part in our lives. I'm sure they do in everybody's home. So uh, it just didn't seem right not to include them. It's almost impossible not to include them. Pickles always, you know, joined at my hip. So she made it into a lot of the shots.
1: She's she's in everything. Yes. Yes.
0: And you said Brian just insisted on being your cat, right?
3: Yes, Brian just showed up on the doorstep one day about 15 years ago, and he never left. So he he must have known something. He was he he chose us.
0: Do, does he really sit there with his legs crossed?
3: He does <laughs> with that very judgmental look on his face. Yes. oh sure, yeah, we,
0: sure. We've had
1: cats and cats and cats, so we're, we're petless right now, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's it just worked that way because it's we travel so much. It's so hard to.
0: There was something funny in the turkey chili recipe. There was something I didn't quite understand.
1: What's that? Turkey chili. I don't know what he's some,
0: doing. Something some, something in a little blurb at the top of the page on, on turkey chili. I couldn't Well, was I couldn't I, quite I think understand.
3: turkey turkey chili. Was that about my crush on cornbread?
0: No, no. I, I, I don't I don't know. You can't you can't find it. I think it's I think it's near the I think it's near the roast chicken one. Uh, well,
1: I, I I can't see it so. <laughs> I just made turkey chili the other
3: night. Did yeah.
0: you? There was some. There was some s- subtle reference.
3: It's very handy to have all my recipes in a book right now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um,
1: how how it do you organize this book? Maybe you could explain that. How is it
3: organized? Yes. Um, well, starts at the beginning of the day. So we've, you know, we've done breakfast, which is great. Some fun breakfast options, and then I offer um, a chapter on. Bread, which is fun. I think uh, that's an area that, that again, people might be hesitant to try, but I seem to break it down as best I can, as simply as I can. So we've got some nice options on bread and some, you know, homemade English muffins and croissants, and, and I know everyone will freak out at, like, ooh, making their own croissant, but trust me, very, very achievable. And um, and then if I focus a little bit, there's a chapter we have on sandwiches, of all things, but this is the only chapter that really sort of uh, steps back to the bakery, because these are, these sandwiches, where we're utilizing a lot of the bread that we make in the previous chapter, uh, these sandwiches are what we make on a daily basis at the bakery. So there's some fun options in there, and things that, you know, maybe more so from my childhood, like a tuna sandwich with potato chips inside of it. Oh, which, I, that takes me back to elementary school. Right? Uh-huh. And if you haven't had a potato chip inside of a sandwich, you don't know what you're missing. Because
1: oh, I do. I don't know why it never caught on. For <laughs> well, fantastic. You
0: have to be careful here in Pittsburgh because you might, you might get sued by... People who put the sa- put the French fries in the sandwiches. <laughs> the, well, the I've name? never done that. Permenter's
1: Pr- 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 um, Pr- Pr- um, as known for that. was yeah, the French fries inside the sandwich. Yeah. It was a, uh, a people who worked night shifts would stop in uh, at breakfast time and um, they wanted something hearty. And so and quick and so they just put it all together and put the French I never understood it to tell you the truth.
3: Well, I've never tried that.
1: Yeah. Well, but turkey. I don't
3: think it's gonna be as crunchy as a potato chip. It's not at
1: all. <laughs> no, no. Not, no. There here's your turkey chili. Did you there
0: was something there was something in that talk to her a second while I
3: Yeah. While I get it here. Um and then well and then you know, after we do sandwiches then oh, I have I
0: re- I really like chili. But I think that I only hang out with him because of his other friends, sour cream and cheddar.
1: Oh, I understand that.
0: So, yeah. So, so <laughs> What's the part it. you don't understand? I don't understand what the subject is of the sentence.
3: Well, I like to personalize. I like to humanize. Okay. My food.
0: Now, now I got it. Okay.
3: Yes. So I always, I always, whether it's baked goods or it's, um, or it's. Uh, meatloaf or chili or whatever, I will humanize it usually as, as a means to just kind of, I don't know, okay. give them a voice.
0: Well, that's the, I couldn't as I said, I couldn't understand what the subject was of the sentence. Now the la, the lamb is interesting. Oh yeah, I, I, I want you I want you to re- reassure our, our our listeners who are still are still searching for the one. The, the, yeah. the, the you find the one in your life by making lamb.
3: Well, that, that lamb, I was, you know, it's a very true story. I, I call that dish how to catch a, catch a husband lamb. Right. And that was one of the first dinners that I had made for my husband long before we were married. I had cooked an, an entire leg of lamb for for the two of us, and he really enjoyed it and so much so that he literally did nearly eat the entire leg of lamb and <laughs> so yeah you know it wasn't that long afterwards that he proposed so i i attribute it somewhere in my mind to
1: to the lamb that dish well you're lucky because we we, we have some excess fine quality lamb and we were looking around to have somebody share it with dinner and a, a lot of our dining buddies we queried them, and uh, I also have to demo a, a disposable grill. But anyhow, so I thought I'd combine it. Nobody likes lamb. It's just no. Like oh, I grew up we love with love lamb. lamb. We love lamb too.
0: No, I, mm-hmm. in fact, I, the f- first lamb I ever cooked, I cooked on a on a Weber kettle grill, in the in the back garden on Anne's birthday one year, because because I, I couldn't figure out where we were going to go out for dinner. <laughs> And, it, and it, bec- it became a signature item, and uh, b- people used to people used to uh, desperately get in the queue for when when they would be invited for dinner with uh, lamb cooked on the on the barbecue. Yeah. Oh, that great! Whole, whole legs, sometimes with sometimes with bone in, sometimes not.
3: Oh well, 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 make sure you let me know next time you're cooking it.
0: Oh sure, sure.
1: <laughs> so, Come on but, over. Rosie, I want to. I want to give people interested in in some quirky um, sections and and attitude in your book a chance to hear about your story um, of you naked with rubber gloves cleaning up from the party. (laughs) Well, yeah. I I mean, I have to admit,
3: I thought that was a bit bizarre. (laughs) Another true story. But that was, again, that story just... uh, speaks to, uh, you know, my need for cleanliness and order, and, uh, you know, it describes the very first dinner party that my husband and I ever had, uh, again, long before we were married, and we invited all of our friends over, and we lived in a little rental apartment uh, down by the water here in Vancouver, and uh, of course, you can imagine, we were very young and had a great time, and we all drank lots, and then Uh, We decided we would do all the dishes the next day, and we didn't have a dishwasher. We only had rubber gloves and liquid dish detergent in those days. (laughs) So we went off to bed, passed out, and I got up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water, Uh, but I had nothing on. I just had jumped out of bed to do this, and then I discovered, of course, in my semi-sober state, all of these dishes, which (laughs) prompted me to put on a pair of rubber gloves and do them all in the middle of the night.
1: <laughs> Too bad you didn't have your cell phone handy. To take
3: well, picture. thank goodness cell phones weren't <laughs> around then. <laughs> uh,
1: well, anyhow, listeners, this gives you a sense of the personality that um, Rosie Dakin puts interweaves into her recipes in this cookbook. It's called... Let me feed you, and I think you'll find it a, a very lovely book and a, certainly a delightful uh, exposure to the person and to her eating.
0: And please give our best wishes to Paul and India.
1: Thank you so much. Wait, <laughs> hey, what about the animals?
0: <laughs> yeah, and the animals? Yeah, Don't
1: forget Brian and Pickle.
0: There you yeah. go, Brian and Pickle, too. And Brian and Pickle, too.
1: Thank you, Rosie, so Well, much. thank you both. Good luck with your book. Thank you so
2: much. <laughs> Bye-bye.
3: Bye.
0: Okay, don't forget to join us, same time, same place, next week. And until then,
1: bye-bye.